Hey, welcome to the Frontier Podcast by Gun.io. I'm Ledge, your host, and today my guest is Zach Dexter, CTO of Ledger X. Ledger X is the first federally regulated exchange and clearinghouse to list and clear fully collateralized, physically settled Bitcoin swaps and options for the institutional market. Zach led the ground up build out of Ledger X's integrated exchange and clearinghouse platform, leveraging open source and cloud technology approaches, including container orchestration and hardware security. He's also a member of the CFTC Technology Advisory Committee's Cybersecurity Subcommittee. Before Ledger X, he worked as a lead software engineer at a Y Combinator backed startup and as an independent software consultant. Zach, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Ledge, how's it going? Excellent to have you, man. Excellent to have you. So before we went on uh, recording, you and I had talked about some of the, the key trends that I'm seeing you know, in various CTO interviews. And uh, some of those regarded, you know, uh, processes around the, let's say the merging of ideas in the product and engineering space, and as well as, you know, the operations and DevOps space along with development. So I thought, you know, we dive in there a little bit. Uh, You had some opinions about, you know, how, how and where engineers need to, you know, spend their time when they're building, you know, a highly scalable, um, sort of MVP product, but that needs to have institutional push. I wondered if you'd dive into that. Yeah, so let's take some examples from the Bitcoin space. There are a lot of people building um, so-called institution-facing exchanges. And to do that, they've been, uh, to, to try to please the institutions, they've been copying features from the institutional markets uh, in the equity space. And those, those include fixed APIs and low-latency servers that are co-located here in New York and New Jersey, um, it turns out that stuff is not actually worth copying. There are reasons why things came up the way they did in certain industries, and those reasons are often legacy. Uh, there was a time when you could get edge by positioning your server you know, a few meters closer to the source of the data, but in recent years, we've seen, uh, seen exchanges like IEX and others come online, and, and people are starting to view equal access as, as a plus as opposed to low latency. So we see a lot of people who are building Bitcoin exchanges copying these existing features. And really, we need some new thinking. Bitcoin is a new asset class. Um, Ethereum's new. The other crypto assets are all new. There's no reason to be copying these structures. So at LedgerX, we've adopted more of a product design approach rather than this kind of product management approach where you take a look at the industry and say, oh, look, here's what people do to build an institutional exchange. Let's go do that. We've started with first principles thinking instead. So define that first principles thinking, you know, especially I, I know you have, you guys have a regulated space, you know, so a little bit different and thinking about that, you know, how, where does that, where's that fit in? Because you do have an entrenched sort of hierarchy, at least from the reporting and, and data side that you need to satisfy. Yeah, sort of. I think first principles thinking is all about asking the simple question. So simple question number one is, are we allowed to do this? And it turns out that's where most Bitcoin exchanges to date have gotten tripped up. Uh, They've decided to issue regulation entirely in many cases or go to jurisdictions where uh, regulation is weak or not as strong. And we have not done that. We said, well, 
we are allowed to do this, to list and clear these products if we register with the appropriate licenses and go through the appropriate processes. We actually did that. Uh, it sounds simple, but to date, nobody else has done it. We're still the only clearinghouse that is listing and clearing physically settled Bitcoin derivatives, period, which is really interesting because the space is not exactly new these days. Uh, and that decision came out of a first principles approach, which is, well, what are we, you know, what do we need to do to do this legally? Uh, there wasn't a lot of hand-wringing over, well, should we get registered? Should we not? Uh, the requirement was very clear and, and we, you know, we took the, that difficult path. So right. it's all about just asking the simple questions first. And I presume that customers really want that, especially on an institutional level, you know, maybe far more than they want the, you know, magical features that are just built into some of that legacy stuff. So it's really, well, yeah, customers way, don't. Yeah, legitimacy, yeah. right? So. Yeah, it, it, those features are actually not very magical. Fix is not exactly a magical protocol. Uh, a lot of the existing approaches are really, really complex for not very good reasons. A great example is the fee schedules in some of these exchanges. I mean, I think you have, a, have to have a PhD in astrophysics to decipher the fee schedules on some of the Bitcoin exchanges out there. Ours is real simple. It's just 1250 aside for options, right? There's nothing, uh, there's no market maker rebate or after 6 p.m. you get a 25% discount if liquidity is 32% less than yesterday's moving average and all this stuff. People do these crazy equity style uh, fee schedules because there are complicated fee schedules in the equities world, which is not a reason to do them at Bitcoin. Just so start over. Extrapolate that to anybody working on their, you know, sort of a uh, new market approach, right? Disruptive approach to a market. How does, how does anybody think about their business model, you know, kind of in that way. And then from the technology implementation standpoint, I mean, in my opinion, throw everything out. Every, anytime you're entering a new market, you have an incredible opportunity to build something from scratch. And that doesn't just, it's a lesson that can be taken far beyond the world of regulated finance. It can be taken into product design. Uh, when we were designing our one-to-one -one negotiated trades, which has been a, a huge hit, I think that Gun.io people have helped us with on the development side. We, we, did something that nobody had ever done. We took a, the virtual pit model, um, which was something we came up with and uh, implemented that straight away. How do we know to do that? Well, we thought, okay, many years ago in Chicago, there was a, a trading pit that's very active. It's sort of dead now. Um, but people would be yelling at each other with bids and offers and everyone's kind of screaming and it, there's, this, there's this chaos, but all the traders know each other and they really love trading that way. I thought we would port that to the, to the Bitcoin world. Uh, so there are a lot of lessons to be learned from first principles thinking on the design side, not just business strategy and regulation. That's fantastic. And um, you made a comment that I, I love this and I wanted to dig into it, you know, sort of uh, don't build for the customers that you think you're going to have, you know, but build something simple that works you know, kind of well enough, which I think most people would resonate with and a little bit of that, you know, lean startup, agile kind of, of language is that uh, how long does that last? You know, where you kind of say, you know, don't build for future customers. Do, can you keep up that disposition in your product iteration? Well, if you're building for future customers, you're really building for a customer that doesn't exist. You want to build for the customers that do exist. I mean, the ones you have today, 
if you're speculating on what people are going to want, that almost never works, uh, at least in our experience. And for us, uh, there were there was this er, er, early on. We thought that we would be catering to very large, high frequency traders, and that and they would be doing millions of orders a second because that's what happens in uh, in the equities world. And it turns out that wasn't the case at all. So I think once we started to focus on the customers we did have, the early Bitcoin adopters, and built what they wanted, uh, and even more than that, we took the sort of an Apple style approach and gave them things they didn't know they want. You know, the, the early Bitcoin adopters were not in the trading pits of Chicago in the 1970s and 80s, right? They were maybe just growing up and maybe looking at moving to Silicon Valley to start their first tech jobs. These, this is a customer base that was not familiar necessarily with the concept of a pit, yet they're, they're, they use and love for a virtual pit, you know? Right, so understanding the customer you have and not presupposing the customer that already exists. So you really carved out even a you know, new market area to go with the new market, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, most of the other people in this space are looking at porting not only the ideas from the old spaces in finance, but also the exact customers. And that's simply not the case. I mean, in every new market, there's a new set of buyers and sellers out there. And certainly with, with Bitcoin especially, I mean, the, the players are just not the same as they were in traditional finance, where the finance industry is... Being, it's being changed completely, and that includes all the market participants, right? It's not just the hedge funds, and it's not just the um, ETFs, and it's not just the banks. It's now, it's now everyone. I mean, it's the the dream of democratized finance is starting to be realized in a lot of ways. So, talk about the deep dive technology stuff. You're a tech guy. Um, what have you designed? You know, what's the stack look like? What are the critical components that actually make this scale and work? Yeah. We did something really simple. We just built a C++ central limit order book and matching engine. Uh, we're actually the only exchange that I'm aware of uh, to do a real-time netted collateral model where we net out the requirements of your entire portfolio in terms of what collateral you have to post on a per-order basis. So we're doing these very expensive real-time computations before every single order hits the matching engine. Uh, most people will do those computations maybe once a day. They'll have a margin call, something like that. So that's all in C++ because uh, it's very CPU heavy. The overarching principle of our system is that it's vertically scaling. It actually doesn't scale horizontally. Most of the systems these days, especially web apps, you can just spin up some new workers, right? And click on Heroku, click add 10 workers. And now you have the ability to support 10,000 more users. And that's great, and it works. Um, but in the exchange model, it's one of the few models that's actually centralized, which is a little bit ironic because Bitcoin is about decentralization. So for that reason, we just use C++ very fast, very stable, uh, really no interest in any of the newer languages that are still maturing. The rest is Python. So uh, React.js on the front end for, for a mobile app in the App Store and also for our web front ends. And... Uh, for data processing, we just pipe everything to a totally ordered Kafka queue and consume from that as fast as possible. And how do you, how do you keep it performant? And uh, how do you look to scale then? Is it, uh, since it's not horizontal, um, do you run into any bottlenecks that 
over time with volume would would increase? Yeah, so I, at the moment, actually, most of our trades are these large one-to-one negotiated trades. And there's not really a, we don't really have a lot of high-frequency people on the platform, but there are some. And for that reason, we, we actually just need to throw more raw horsepower at it. So that means more CPU and more straightforward optimizations. We, we go into the C++ standard library documentation. We use hash maps for O1 lookups uh, in a lot of cases. And we make the trade-off uh, where, where we decide, okay, we're going to use more memory and we're going to uh, consider memory to be very cheap because it's really cheap to go out and upgrade your server on Amazon to get 64 gigs of memory. And we're going to cache everything in the matching engine and get really, really, really fast operations, really, really um, good use out of our CPU at the cost of using a lot of memory. And that's been, it's been really nice to... Um, have access to machines with just an absolute, absolutely massive amount of RAM. And so it's all public cloud then, you said Amazon. Yeah. Any, um, any thoughts? I, I just talked to a company that is still on the private data center train and loves it that way. Do you see any trade-offs there that there's ever a reason to go back that direction? I mean, I guess if we wanted to spend more money for, uh, worse <laughs> results than we would go to the data center. I, I really do not understand why people do this. I mean, we're, you know, we're a regulated exchange and clearinghouse and uh, we tell the CFTC and, and they, you know, they'd like this answer uh, that public cloud is great. There's absolutely no reason for us to be renting racks and racks of data center space in Secaucus or wherever. It, it, there's just no justification for it. I mean, we're, we're not looking to onboard market participants who are going to be doing millions of quotes a second and need, you know, a few nanoseconds shaved off somewhere. Um, that's not a thing in this space. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not sure why people have, have done that. Uh, definitely not in your space. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I tend to agree. Um, so let me pivot for a second. One more last cool thing that you, that you talked about when we were off mic. You know, I had noted that in, you know, in my previous interviews this season, you know, there seems to be a, I guess a, a bunching on the, the sort of operations stack, right? That full stack doesn't just mean, uh, you know, sort of front end and back end anymore. It also includes DevOps. And you made an interesting comment that not just DevOps, but in fact, just regular operations is in fact coalescing as well. And I thought, I thought that was a cool story to talk about, like how you address your regulatory and reporting needs in, in non-traditional ways that are driven by technology. Yep, so all of our regular, uh, regulatory reports are uploaded automatically, generated automatically, you know, reviewed automatically. We use runtime assertions just like people who are building rocket, rocket systems do uh, to detect errors. So usually in the past, uh, in many cases today, when you're running an exchange or clearinghouse, you'll have a whole staff of people responsible for quote-unquote operations. That could mean anything from surveilling the market to putting together reports to regulators um, to you know, turning the market on and off. But in our case, we've used a whole host of cloud-based tools and custom software to automate essentially everything. So our operations staff is really the platform itself. And if there's any case where that is not true, we'll work really, really quickly and really, really hard to operate that particular automation. So our platform runs itself 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I think people should target across all industries instead of having 
people with Excel spreadsheets go through and perform these low to medium value operational activities. You should look to automate wherever you can. And we've made, um, you know, we've made heavy use of tech contractors in some areas for that. And it's really worked out well for us because then we can dedicate the resources that would otherwise go to traditional quote unquote operations to more software development. And so you think that's the thing that, that really any business can look at then and should invest in heavily. Yeah, I, I think it's almost like uh, product managers in operations are, I don't want to say they're categorically things in the past, but you know, maybe have your engineers talk directly to customers and do a little bit of product design, Apple style, maybe err towards that, especially, especially in finance these days. And I, I would personally always err towards automating operations, um, nailing things first at the human level, right? Which, which certainly seems, uh, seems to suggest that uh, engineers can no longer be the engineers that I remember, you know, 20, 25 years ago of, you know, sort of all in the basement behind a screen and the, with the lights off. The, the, oh, absolutely. You're you know, talking I've about conversant, full stack humans, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Full stack human. That's a great way to put it. Our engineers are on our support tickets. They're you know, meeting with customers. They're really trying to empathize with what, what customers are doing. And that, that also gives us a better sense of how to prioritize, right? If somebody says, oh, I'm a product manager and I think XYZ is really important. We have to get it done this week. That's a lot different than, hey, I'm a customer and I feel a lot of pain here. Right. And having an engineer really viscerally understand that. So we try to connect the two as, as much as possible. The empathetic engineer. Yeah. Well, awesome. Zach, thank you. Any uh, finishing comments? Where can people check out you and your work? I just ledgerx.com. And for finishing comments, I guess I would say to the moon. <laughs> and back. <laughs> yeah, possibly back, right? But either way, you can hedge your risk up or down. So. <laughs> Spoken like an options trader. <laughs> All right. Thanks, thanks very much. Time, Zach. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.